Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. The best things in life are free, and if you live in the Federation, so is everything else. The subject of the economics of Star Trek comes up a lot on this show, as recently as our last episode, in fact, when I talked with Eleanor Tremere about the DS9 episodes Homefront and Paradise Lost. We were supposed to be talking about Cisco trying to stop a military coup from seizing power after a false flag operation. But we kept wondering, where does Joe Sisko get his ingredients from? Like, when you eat at Sisko's, do you leave a tip? Is there another Cajun, uh, sorry, Creole restaurant across the street? Are they in competition? How can any service industry survive with non-paying customers? Trek is supposed to be a world without money, at least in the Federation, and people work to better themselves. But being better doesn't put food on the table. So how does a post-scarcity economy even work? Well, I'm finally going to get answers to some of these financial questions. Manu Sadia will be on the show today. Manu is the author of Treconomics, The Economics of Star Trek, a book that delves into the utopian society of the Federation and attempts to explain how a paradise like Star Trek can run without money. Turns out it's a little more complicated than just replacing the invisible hand with a giant green one. And if you like that joke, you're going to love my talk with Manu a little later in the show. First, though, a quick check-in with some of the latest news from the world of Trek, and stick around till the end of the show to find out what's coming up on next week's episode. So have a seat, look over the menu, and put your wallet away. Your money's no good here. Just watch out for the gator. Now let's get underway. Oh, where to even start with Trek news? Here's a place to start. The hotly anticipated Deep Space Nine retrospective, What We Left Behind, makes its world premiere this Friday, October 19th, at the Destination Trek Convention in Birmingham, England. More on that later. But the backers of the crowdfunding campaign that made the documentary possible got a chance to attend a special screening last weekend at Paramount Studios in L.A. with the stars of DS9 in attendance. Friends of the podcast and former show guests, Paula Block and Terry Erdman, were there covering the event for TrekMovie.com. And of course, they were catching up with the cast and the crew of DS9. Paula and Terry wrote the Deep Space Nine companion reference book after spending years interviewing the people behind DS9. Uh, We talk about all of that in their episode of this show, where we discussed trials and tribulations. And you can find that show in the archive at EnterprisingIndividuals.com. Anyway... According to Paula, it was a magical evening, and the documentary itself is funny, touching, and heartfelt. And from what she says, it's full of interviews with the cast and crew that are packed with behind-the-scenes details about the show, from why they wouldn't let Sisko shave his head until the end of Season 3, to why Terry Farrell left the show at the end of Season 6, why IRS Stephen Bear dyes his beard blue. Uh, Actually, I don't know about that last one, but that's what I really want to know. There is also a tribute to departed DS9 co-creator Michael Piller at the premiere. Piller is, of course, responsible for much of what we think of as post-TOS Trek, and he helped bring DS9 to life. The backers who were there got a chance to mingle with the cast, too, and chat about the series and take selfies. The entire evening sounded just delightful, and boy, do I wish I'd dropped a C-note or two on this thing back in the funding stages, but fear not. The document will one day be available for purchase or download and as previously mentioned will be screening at destination trek this weekend where we enterprising individuals have an inside woman 
Ella Pearson, my co-host for Discoverage, our Star Trek Discovery recap show, will be on hand this weekend at Destination Trek in Birmingham. She'll be there representing the show. She's going to be interviewing some of the stars of DS9, and she'll have more to report on the What We Left Behind documentary. So stay tuned here and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EISTPOD to get updates on the show. Thanks to Paula for her review of the event last weekend, and thanks for the fun pictures that she took as well. I'll leave a link to her account of the evening on trekmovie.com in the show notes, so go check it out, and while you're surfing it up, check out the Deep Space Nine Companion or Paula and Terry's DS9 novels, which are excellent too. Links for all of them in the show notes as well. Okay, Discovery news real quick, and then it's Trekonomics time. Season two of Discovery is rapidly approaching. The show returns on CBS All Access on January 17th of next year. And of course, the Short Trek series of short films have already begun airing. Ella and I reviewed the first Short Trek starring Ensign Tilly, entitled Runaway, a few weeks ago. And you can find our episode about Runaway in our show feed or on our website. The next Short Trek is titled Calypso and stars Aldous Hodge as Kraft, a new character who is trapped aboard an abandoned ship with only an AI for company. It sounds like it's going to be really spooky and great, and we'll be covering it as usual on a live episode at 9 p.m. Central on November 8th, right after the episode airs on CBS All Access. Ella will be back for that, and our guests on the episode will be Thaddeus from the Delta Flyer podcast. So join us then. As for season two proper, there weren't any huge bombshells to come out of the Star Trek Discovery panel at New York City Comic Con, although a new two-and-a-half-minute trailer for the season did drop at the show, and it looks like things are in full swing. You've got Anson Mount as Captain Pike, Rebecca Romaine as number one, the Klingons have hair again, uh, looks like Tyler's gone all hipster man bun on us, Tilly and Stamets are doing some Ghostbusters action, and oh my god, Bearded Spock. We finally get to see Ethan Peck as Mr. Spock, and some people are a little thrown off by the state of his facial follicles. But whatever, man. Spock's beard has been a band since the early 90s. Get over it. We also know that Spanish actor Javier Botet has been cast as old alien? Seriously, (laughs) that's all we've got. Botet is a really tall guy, uh, like Doug Jones. And like Doug Jones, he's played a lot of creature roles in films like Mama and Slenderman. And Botet says that he's working with Jones in the episode that he's in. So, Saru's dad? Like, that would be literally old, older than Saru by necessity, uh, unless there's something about Kelpian physiology that I don't know. Anyway, it's interesting, and we'll see. I I always like it when they get real-deal physical performers to bring alien creatures to life. It's all well and good to get Jeffrey Combs in again and you slap some ears on him, but actors like Jones and Botet really help sell the alienness of the aliens. Last bit of Discovery business, we've talked before on the show about how the cage seems like the watchword for season two, and yeah, that's that's pretty much what's going on. So much so that the Kurtz, Alex Kurtzman himself, said in an interview, quote, we're going to Talos, unquote, a.k.a. Talos 4, the crazy illusion planet from the cage. If you need a refresher on the cage, check out our cage episode commentary available on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Did you know that visiting Talos, at least in the 23rd century, was the only crime on the books that still got you the death penalty? Which seems a little uneven. I mean, I would consider bringing the death penalty back for wearing socks with sandals or having a hipster man bun, but if you're going to get rid of capital punishment, get rid of capital punishment. Just leave poor Vina and Pike in peace. The same interview that gave us that Talos tidbit also got us a little bit of info about the other Trek series currently in the works. The Picard series is set to begin filming April of next year, and it will not cross over with Discovery. At least there's no plan for the two shows to cross over. 
Executive producer of Discovery, Heather Kadem, said that CBS is aware that each show should be distinct in its own way and have its own voice. The still-untitled Picard show is planned to be an ongoing series that will run for multiple seasons, and it sounds like the various new shows in development, uh, like the Picard show, the developing Starfleet Academy show, the Khan series, remember that one, and the rumored animated series won't necessarily run one right after the other, but there will be planned breaks in between seasons to avoid viewer burnout. As far as that animated show goes... There's been a lot of talk about Mike McMahon, the Rick and Morty writer who wrote the script for the upcoming Rain Wilson-directed short trek, McMahon possibly developing the animated show, which would be cool, but the Kurtz was cagey, coquettish even, saying only, quote, we can't really talk about it yet, end quote. Oh, Alex. Can I call you Alex? Kurtz, then. You're doing it. You're melting my cold, breen heart. You are the heart in my day and the soul in my night. I don't think this is my style. Shut up, kid. Here's hoping you deliver. Stay tuned for all the news from around the Trek sphere, both here and on social media at at EISTpod on Facebook and Twitter. All right. Liquidate your assets, shred your paper currency, and melt down your coinage for your new career as a dilettante metal sculptor or something because we're evolving beyond the pursuit of material wealth and talking Trekonomics. I'm talking with Manu Sadia today. I was thrilled to get a chance to talk with him, and I've wanted to ever since I picked up his book, Treconomics. Treconomics has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. Manu's also a contributing writer for Fusion.net, and he's a guy that knows his sci-fi. We talk not only about Trek in this interview, but also Isaac Asimov and Ian Banks and Babylon 5, and how utopias are a dime a dozen in sci-fi, but Trek's is one of the few that is relentlessly positive. And we talk about how the mystery of the post-scarcity Federation economy factors into that positivity. I hope you enjoy my talk with Manu Sadia. You know, I was reading your book and you give your uh, sort of intro to the world of Trek yes. uh, at the beginning of it. And I found that really fascinating. <laughs> Intriguing. How so? Intri- <laughs> intriguing. Well, just the idea the idea that uh, your, like your parents were like, no, no, no TV, no violent oh, type stuff. Yeah. So no Star Wars, but then they heard Star Trek, and they were like, eh, that seems all right. Yeah, because, you know, it was like Cousteau or something. I mean, it, Sure, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not that, you know, I, yeah, we didn't have TV. We didn't. We, yeah, that wasn't part of the education I received. I made up for it. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we always do. We always right. do. Yeah. No, no, I mean, I, I uh, um, it's, it's hard to remember now, but... This was like late 70s, early 80s, except for Star Wars, I think. Science fiction in general was completely marginal. Uh, mm-hmm. And even Star Wars was not really, I mean, okay, let's not get it there, but is Star Wars science <laughs> fiction uh, in the first place? You know, I, I, it, it takes place in space, I guess, and there are, uh, yeah, laser uh, pistols. But right. or rifles or whatnot. But other than that, yeah, I mean, science fiction was never really mainstream, or it was not mainstream the way it is now. Now, you know, pop culture is basically all saturated by uh, science fiction narratives. I would say. Oh, certainly. And and you know, yeah. this is what gets the kids to the movie theaters. Uh, so. Yeah, at the time it wasn't. It was. It was kind of marginal. It was not something. It was not considered a serious pursuit, or even uh, something 
that was aesthetically interesting in any way, shape, or form. Uh, yeah. And especially in France. So, yeah. So, so, so that, was, that was the environment I, I grew up in. But uh, somehow I, I found a way to discover it and enjoy it on my own. And it was my own thing. Uh, and then, you know, I, I later discovered that a few of my friends were also into the same type of things. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, I mean, it was harder to be a fan or a nerd uh, back then, I would say. It was not, I, I, I don't know if harder is the word, but uh, it wasn't as socially acceptable. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, sure. that's, so, so that, that, that's my way to try. And I think, you know, it's, it's fairly similar to a lot of people my age. Uh, the, the, the older folks, like the, our parents' generations, who had a chance to watch the original series live on TV, have certainly, certainly have a, a different experience of it uh we are sort of the lost generation there you know <laughs> interesting i've had some non-american guests on the show before but i don't think i've ever had anybody um from france uh, what's trek fandom like in france uh i i left quite a while ago you know like in the mid 90s oh, sure, sure. so uh i can speak for the 80s and there were no reruns of the original series in France or whatever. Like, I think the original series in France came, uh, let me, I mean, you know, maybe the late eighties. Um, there were only three TV stations, three TV channels in France, no cable, no what's no whatever until, uh, the mid eighties. And so space was at a premium and, uh, <laughs> if I if, if I may and <laughs> and and no they they would not show that kind of things. Um, the interestingly I think Next Generation did not make it to France until cable became sort of widespread and that's the mid nineties. Uh, and then Deep Space Nine was first showed you know in the early two thousands. So sure. so it's sort of a so there's that, you know, like the, the sort of broadcast picture was not uh, very Trek-like, or it was, it was not a fixture of TV. But that said, you know, I, I had some American friends and they would bring tapes. And then, you know, it was complicated because the, the NTSC in France, they don't have the same standards. So you would have to get, right. you know, a, a, I don't know if you remember these, these, uh, things where you would put tapes and watch TV, you know, right, <laughs> right, right. VCRs, but the VCRs were different standards. So, you know, you have to have the VCR that could play the, the NTSC, uh, tapes. So it was, it was, right. so, so there was a sort of contraband going on, but other than, <laughs> but other than that, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't something that, uh, except for, for motion pictures, except for movies, uh, right. Trek was not, uh, as, you know, the, the, the kind of cultural touchstone that it is here, yeah. that it was in, in the 80s even. Um, so, yeah, so that, that, was, that was marginal. Uh, now it's the, the culture is global and, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, they have conventions and stuff now in France. So. Yeah. <laughs> I always wondered what the French would think of uh, Jean-Luc Picard, who is nominally a Frenchman, but really just a, a nominally. <laughs> I, his family makes a Bordeaux wine, so no, right. very uh, appreciated, I think. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the pride of France. 
<laughs> yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> I mean, you know, they have a whole episode that takes place near Bordeaux, and you know, of course, they all have British accents. That's the thing that I, you know, every time you want to make somebody in the U.S., every time you want to make somebody sound, you know, old world and serious and classy, you know, you, you get the British actor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, I, I find that kind of endearing, actually, uh, and. Uh, it still baffles me that he would leave Bordeaux to actually go out into space, but that's to go to space. <laughs> <laughs> that's a totally different story. <laughs> there is. A, did you know that there is an actual Chateau Picard, uh, a Bordeaux wine that's called Chateau Picard, and it's not that great, but okay, <laughs> you know, it's it's easy to find. So uh, okay, that, that's so that's that's a, a small like, like the the Jean Luc Picard himself. You, you know where his name comes from. Comes from the Picard family from Switzerland. Uh, right, the yeah. great, I think the, the, the grandson is the guy who went around the world in a solar plane recently. Oh, okay. Bertrand Picard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're still doing it. They're crazy. Uh, crazy family. Anyhow. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, we talk about a lot of different episodes of Trek on this show, and we've discussed many aspects of the Trek universe, but one aspect that we haven't really de- uh, dived into yet uh, and it's something that's always been on the margins of any discussion that we have on the show is how does the Federation economy work exactly? Like specifically, how did humanity achieve freedom from the economic problems that face our contemporary society? And, and how does the Federation conduct itself economically in the galactic community? And Gene Roddenberry wasn't an economist, nor were the writers of the show um, but they continued uh, this legacy. And, and your book, Treconomics, tries to examine the nuts and bolts mm-hmm. of how the utopian economy of the 24th century would actually operate. Correct. Um, and by the way, you know, maybe they were not economists, but they're extremely sharp on it. Like it's always on point. Uh, it's a, hmm. it, it remains very consistent throughout. Like you, you have to give them a lot of credit for uh, building a world that that is um so internally uh, logical and, and well-made. Uh, and I, I, it, this has always impressed me greatly. Uh, and that's a part of why I wrote the book, because I thought, wow, this, this is cool. This, this actually makes sense. Uh, and they're actually using a lot of uh, serious economic concepts that um, you know, deserve to be uh, discussed, uh, to sort of bring to light or bring to the fore the... the Nuts and bolts. I mean, it's almost like the plumbing of the universe, and it's <laughs> and it's important to know some plumbing, you know, because uh, you want to know how the water comes to you. So right. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 that that was the purpose of the book, and um, yeah, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating. Uh, I keep getting, you know, I keep getting people to uh, uh, see Trek. I mean, readers see Trek in a new way once they read the book, and I find that fantastic. Yeah. One of the things I really like about the book is that you don't have to be an MBA to understand it. And you don't even have to be a Trek fan really to get it either. You cite many episodes of Trek in the text, but you also reference the work of many other sci-fi authors mm. like the Strugatsky brothers and Heinlein and Asimov and the Gwyn. And they all wrote in their own ways about these possible utopias, yeah. economic or otherwise. So the, the thing that's surprising is how little utopian um, uh Themes are explored in science fiction, uh, except for, you know, these few authors. And Heinlein is even, you know, uh, it's ambiguous. 
But Asimov, Le Guin, the Strugatsky brothers, Russians, uh, right? Uh, are and the, and you know there's Ian Banks as well, uh, sure. who drew a lot of inspiration from the Strugatsky brothers. But these are really the most famous people in science fiction who wrote about utopian worlds and utopian societies, and they're really a minority. It's a min- It's a it's a marginal current in the sort of the, the larger flow of science fiction and uh, I, you know besides trek which sort of stands in for a lot of science fiction and is this sort of big monument in the middle of it it's interesting that trek in the end even though it is very prominent is actually representative of a much more minoritarian point of view in science fiction uh, which is utopia uh, usually you want dystopia or you want the world to be the antagonist because it makes for, right. I mean, it, it makes for better stories, I guess, I mean, more drama, I should say. Uh, sure. Star Trek, as we know, a lot of it is not too dramatic. There's always a solution to everything. Uh, and usually it's a rational and well thought out solution and which pleases everybody. Uh, it's not aliens. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, or you know, Starship Troopers, or it's nice aliens. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, so the the so that was one of the things that I found kind of striking about Trek and about their effort to make it into a uh, beautiful and welcoming and uh, utopian universe. So that was one thing. Then the other thing is, it's actually um, not completely crazy. The way they they build their society, it's it's fairly uh, mainstream economics, uh, you know, dialed up to, you know, the max. That's it's pretty much what Keynes, so uh, great famous British economist uh, uh, Keynes, who uh, in the thirties and forties wrote uh, several great treaties on. Uh, money and monetary system and uh, how government can intervene in uh, the economy to make it work for everybody. I mean, this is sort of a mainstay of liberal economics. Uh, And in 1930, so right after the beginning of the Great Depression, he writes this little pamphlet that's called the, um, The Economic Prospects for Grandchildren. And in which he sort of engages in, in, in uh, it's almost an exercise in science fiction, where he describes how wealth in society, at, at the current rate of growth, uh, the wealth of society will become so enormous that um, making money will no longer be of much relevance to most people because everybody will have their needs. Uh, fulfilled and taken care of because the price of things and of necessity will go down to zero or close to zero. And he makes these predictions that the GDP of uh, Great Britain by 2030 will be four times what it was in 1930. And, you know, we're still pretty much on track for that. Uh, What's interesting, so so in effect, it's true that uh, the standards of living have continuously risen uh, in the developed world, and uh, but it, it doesn't seem that somehow society has become less interested 
in accumulating financial capital or people in society and economic actors. So that's one of the questions that are raised by Keynes' work, but also that are raised in Star Trek. At what point do people are satiated and are no longer interested in uh, fulfilling new wants or new needs? Uh, yeah. and, and Star Trek is this sort of a society that's on the other side uh, of that question. It's, it's beyond that question. People are no longer interested in uh, the sort of economic competition uh, that we currently live in. Do you think that that depiction of that, that Trekonomic economy on Trek, whether it's practical or whether it's a you know cloud cuckoo land fantasy, do you think that that's key to Trek's success and what people really have uh, enjoyed watching over the years? I... Because people seem to like dy- people love dystopias, yeah, <laughs> but they also love Trek as well. Yeah, I mean it's cuddly, right? Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's also a, a sort of a, it presents a very different way to behave. Uh, it, it it shows people who have very different motivations than the kind of motivations that we have in our daily lives, and that and that sort of animate us and make us do things. So the, the, what's uncanny about Trek is that uh, people seem to live under a different regime of uh, incentives and they do things for reasons that seem very elevated and philosophical. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and that's, you know, that's aspirational, I think. Uh, people would, it seems that people would much rather, at least some Trekkies or Trekkies in general, would much rather live under this type of uh, incentives regime where uh, it's not so much about how much you own or how much, how much you're, you're worth in terms of money, but what you contribute to the rest of society. Uh, it's, it's, it's very um, angelic almost. It, it, no, it <laughs> yeah. presupposes uh, or, or it demands or, or it hopes that people uh, will become better than better morally, I would say. I don't know if better is the word, but like there's a moral uh, stance in presenting such a society, which is, you know, uh, normatively, it's better to care about others and your contribution to science and things like that than right. how much money you're worth. It, it's it's definitely a, uh, a system of values. Yeah, we've talked about that previously on the show, the idea of the um, the hippies with ray guns dynamic. Like the idea that uh, on the show, like, you would just you'd be likely to find somebody just like knitting, you know, or like building a ship in a bottle or something like that. They almost have these like Victorian pastimes and yes. lives. Nobody's nobody's yelling at each other on social media or on forums oh. about this or that. Oh, and no. They have these like contemplative kind of lives. They, they are all Vulcans in one way or another. Uh, yeah, there you go. Sure. I mean, and, and, you know, the Vulcans are known for being very philosophical and logical and having eschewed any sort of uh, interest in material pursuits. Uh, it's it's. It's the sort of the ideal of humanity that that is free from uh, a lot of what we take as natural human nature today. Uh, I don't know if it's you know human nature, or if it's natural, or if it's something that is deeply ingrained in us, or if it's socially learned. I don't know, uh, but it presents this world where whatever motivations we are we we have today, which are mostly economic. Uh, and positional, so comparing ourselves to other people, 
through the consumption of objects or through other things, but mostly, you know, I have a bigger car than yours. Uh, yeah. It's or I have a bigger salary than yours. Uh, the, the sort of positional issues or, or ways to position oneself with respect to others have disappeared in the Trek universe. They've been replaced by other things. Uh, yeah. Most notably, you know, uh, being number one at the academy, and there's only one captain's chair, you know, uh, and, and and it's so so it's been replaced by something else. At least in Starfleet, it seems that the rest of the universe that sometimes we, we catch a glimpse of it every once in a while, right? Uh, of people living normal daily lives, and uh, they don't really seem to care about Starfleet that much. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. Starfleet is almost like it's it's where you. Where you send the super competitive uh, people who really to make a difference in so maybe it acts as something of a of a release valve too as well. You know, if you've yeah. got somebody in a community who is very ambitious, and it's like, okay, this person might be a problem. Yeah. So you give them this ladder to climb, you know, of accomplishment. In, yeah, in exactly. It's like, ah, okay, just just go to the academy. You know, sure, <laughs> do your thing. Uh, there's this, you know, they're almost like throwbacks. Um, Starfleet officers. So, and that's why we can probably relate to them a little more. But, sure. but it seems that the rest of Star Trek society, you know, like you see Picard's uh, family in that episode after he, you know, he survives the board and he, he goes to Bordeaux. And really, their big debate is whether to get a replicator or not because is it going to make the soup as good as. <laughs> yeah. Like, like they, they seem really. Uh, uh, deeply involved in things that are, frankly, you know, rich people's problems. Uh, and that's wonderful. It's the kind of life everybody would like to live here uh, yeah. right now. So I think there's this element of that, that the, uh, the popularity of the show uh, has a lot to do with this sort of aspirational utopia. Like someday the world could be like that. Um, and, you know, the, the, you could even turn the question around. Uh, it seems that we have achieved today, you know, in America and in, in the Western world, at least, a level of wealth that was largely inconceivable 100 years ago. So uh, a lot of our needs and wants are, are really become, have become really trivial. I mean, I, I remember when, when it was like a great uh, fest to get smoked salmon, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, in the early 80s, like that wasn't something that was, you know, easily available. Now it's like for, sure. for, for $3.99, you get a pack of Trader Joe's. Uh, so we, we have achieved all these uh, milestones and, and this wealth uh, that, you know, really uh, speaks a lot to technology and the power of the market and all that stuff. Uh, yeah. We almost live in Star Trek in many ways. Uh, we, we, we have a, a universal, I mean, it's not quite a replicator, but, you know, you, you, you push a button on your, on your keyboard and Amazon will send something to you in 24 hours. Sure, you have to pay. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. And by the way, you know, if you look at economic history, which I did a little bit in the book, uh, when you look at the incredible uh, uh, rise in standard of living since the 18th century, uh, you can say, you know, we, we have arrived at, at a degree 
of abundance or even overabundance that uh, was completely, uh, you know, unimaginable at the, 200 years ago. What you, if, if Star Trek, in fact, describes the world we live in, what it is also describing is characters who have decided to behave in ways that are uh, profoundly non-economic. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so they can serve as models. I, mean, I, 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 I find, the, I know it sounds cheesy, but I find the philosophy that, that seems to animate Jean-Luc Picard uh, extremely appealing, and I try to live by it a little bit. Uh, yeah. I, I don't necessarily succeed, but uh, there's the sense that, you know, since most of our most basic needs are taken care of, now it's time to work on being more humans uh, and, you know, read more and be uh, and cultivate, uh, cultivate our minds and uh, try to be respectful to others and try to, you know, apply justice wherever you can and whenever you can. I'm not a disbeliever, but do do you really think that altruism and, and self improvement would be the the end result of uh, a lack of scarcity? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, just to play devil's nothing, advocate, <laughs> no, 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 no. the proof is no, because uh, we we have abolished scarcity in our world as it is. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, compared to 200, 300 years ago, and and this has not disappeared. Uh, altruism. I don't know if self-improvement works, but at least altruism and is, is a choice that you make in your life. It's not, and I think that's where it's it's interesting because it's it's always a choice and an ethical choice that you make. What what kind of ethics do you want to live by? Uh, it's not it's it's an everyday struggle. I I, I don't think that. Um, Having abolished scarcity in our society, we still have artificial scarcity of one sort or another. Uh, yeah. And uh, Paul Krugman was saying that that he 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 thought that humans uh, Star Trek is not possible because humans really want to be unhappy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you know, like when you unpack what he's saying, it's it's there's something true to to the notion that people want. Uh, these sort of positional uh, games, and like in a context where scarcity is no longer an issue, people yeah. need to find ways to want more things or want other things. Um, yeah, not want- like desire. Desire is yes. sort of the human disease. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, as as we see, you know, with social media, for instance, uh, it can be leveraged for incredible results. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the the sort of mimetic desire, like you see other people do something and you want to be like them, or you want to be better than them. I mean, this seems to animate us a lot. Um, so, is desire something that can be uh, sort of wiped out and and you know come back every seven years like the pond far for Vulcans? I don't know. <laughs> no, but, but you, you also see like in the the figures and in the 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 Vulcans represent this sort of. Uh, human that has uh, brought desire under control. Uh, mm-hmm. But they don't seem to be much, I mean, you know, they're wonderful, but are they fun? <laughs> I mean, seriously, they, like, Vulcans are like, they're, they're, they're very intriguing and they're very, they're almost godlike, but you know, they have no desire or they have like once every seven years. I mean, it's, it seems that there's something unbalanced about it. Uh, yeah. So we take the good with the bad, I suppose. 
but it's yeah. it's always an interesting uh, thought experiment, right? I mean, the the in the end, I I see Star Trek as a thought experiment uh, on on what on how humans would behave under terminally improved conditions. Uh, and I'm not saying that we live under terminally improved conditions, but we're close. So maybe you know there is something about presenting a a, a different moral universe to the TV viewing public than the usual that I, yeah. I find profoundly worthwhile and very entertaining. And I seem to be not the only one in that case. Do I think it, yeah. is it possible? Who knows? <laughs> nope. Well, you have a great analogy in the book about cookies uh, where you talk about how uh, when you've, when you're eating cookies, like the, the first cookie is great. You know, the second one's not quite as great. And eventually if you're just binging unlimited cookies, the cookies become less appealing in general. You feel horrible about yourself, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's the problem of association. Uh, at what, at what point is enough enough? Uh, and that is something that is very tricky. Uh, it is, you know, the object of a lot of economic research and, you know, behavioral economics, but it is also something that, um, on a very personal level you can experience and, and when is enough enough? Uh, are there things, in the world that you cannot get enough of? I don't know. Um, money? Can you get it? Like, that, it's, it's a very practical question. Like, at what point is uh, enough money? At what point, you know, the money you have is enough money? Uh, right. Will you find new usage from the additional money you can get? Will it make you happier? Uh, mm -hmm. There are some studies that show that the marginal benefit of uh, you know, any additional, like the marginal benefit of additional money beyond a certain point decreases down to zero. So, uh, you know, it, it, beyond a certain point, I can't remember what the exact number was, but it was kind of low, you know, it was a hundred thousand right, dollars right. or something. And then beyond that, you're still like, okay, I have all this money. What the hell am I going to do with it? So you start buying crap and expensive. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and uh, because, and, and, you know, also let's not forget there's uh, an entire uh, part of society that is geared to actually make you spend the additional money that you you get. So you need right. to get that Prada bag, bag, or you know you need to get that car, or you, that's that's people want to to uh, take your money basically. Yeah, uh, it's so I don't know. I don't know at what point is it enough, and I don't know if um, Star Trek gives us a past or or a sort of toolkit to evaluate that and to decide that. And I don't know if Star Trek makes us want to be frugal. Like, do you want, I mean, the, the, the question of frugality, by the way, is interesting in Star Trek because they have these replicators so they can get anything they want. Do they get anything they want? No, they're too busy with other things. But, right, yeah. <laughs> but if you had a replicator now, you know, like the equivalent of a Star Trek replicator, it would be very disrupt disruptive to your life because you could actually get anything you want. Uh, there's this one episode in Voyager, I think, where the the one of the you know they encounter an alien race and they're trying to steal a replicator and Captain Janeway is is saying something to the effect that uh, for a society that is not involved enough, getting a replicator would destroy them. Uh, 
Right. And yes, there, there is something to that. Uh, so it seems that a lot of the Star Trek characters uh, live in a world beyond abundance, but they are extremely self-disciplined. Uh, and uh, this is something that is very strange. I know if I lived in the world of Star Trek, I'd, I'd, I'd just binge all the time. I don't, <laughs> you know, on the rise up probably. Uh, I'll be, I'd be on the pleasure planet and I wouldn't do it. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> A great point that you make in the book is that as far as like ownership goes, like if you own a replicator or you own a business or, or a factory or something, it imparts responsibility to you. And so therefore, it might be in the interest of a normal Federation citizen to not have or control a bunch of stuff because they wouldn't want to then have to administrate it to other people. What a pain in the ass, right? I mean, right. Oh, right. Yeah. Man, I'm the guy in charge of the replicator. Oh, God. You know, I mean, it's, it's there, there's there's some some of that. I mean, it seems to be the, the logical way this is set up. Uh, the people who seem to hold, you know, business or have businesses say, uh, Captain Cisco's father in New Orleans, like his restaurant, is doing that because he loves it. You know, that right. seems to be very in touch with his own uh, work and, and the food and, and making it good and not replicated. Uh, so he, he's sort of a, you know, a, a Williamsburg or slash Brooklyn hipster in that sense. <laughs> sure. like the, the, the sort of the artisanal knowledge become extremely valuable because the personal touch that the artist imparts to his work, his or her work, uh, becomes extremely valuable. So that's, that would be one of the reasons to actually run a, a whatever you would call a business in, in the Federation. Uh, yeah, and you talk in the book too about how the, the the design phase becomes kind of the most important part of the process since there's no pattern uh, patents or ownership or anything like that. So if Joseph Cisco creates a great new recipe, he's not trying to hold on to it yes. uh, or anything like that. You know, it could just disseminate. I think I read that your it might have been in the book that your son was into 3D printing. Yes. And uh, I've gone on like Thingiverse yeah. and it's amazing to see all the people design things with like 3D CAD software and just share their designs with everybody. everybody yeah, I mean, there is an element of that. I mean, it, it's true also that 3D printing for plastic stuff, I mean, like it's mostly toys, right? Or, you know, oh, yeah. you can make your D&D uh, dice. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of that. But, but beyond that, I mean, it's, it's not the most useful things, but, but you can see where it could go and where you would gain fame uh, by designing beautiful things. Uh, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting model of how to relate to others and how to share. Uh, a lot of, you know, social media, Many social media personalities have nothing to sell but themselves, and they share freely, but then, you know, they also share ads. So I guess that's, yeah. Uh, but, but that's a separate thing. It's true that the, the design becomes, like, the key thing, because the actual production in the world right. of Replicator is no longer an issue. Taken care of, right. Yes. And, and also, you can see that in luxury brands today. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, it's it's... It's, it's the design that matters, like how it's made, you know, it's usually made by like child laborers in, in somewhere. So. Well, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> you talk about celebrity. Um, in the book, you talk about how reputation mm -hmm. and just uh, uniqueness and, and being interesting would be a substitute currency in a society like that, which I found uh, fascinating. 
Fascinating. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it seems to be the only way to distinguish oneself, right? Right. Uh, instead of distinguishing oneself by one's net worth or accomplishments in business or, you know, that kind of things, then it's whatever you discover. If you, if you get the, the Daystrom prize, uh, it, <laughs> sure. right? I mean, it, it becomes that. Uh, like, what kind of great scholar are you or great captain? Uh, this this is this is the currency. It's it's honor and respect and the respect of others. Uh, yeah. Because it it certainly isn't uh, your ability to, you know, or like the size of your private jet. Uh, so that, <laughs> right. that's it. It, it becomes a, a, a something in a way much more fluid, um, in the sense that there, there's no. I mean, there are prizes and there are positions and there are uh, offices, but in the end, you know, they're, they're, it, it's a lot like academia where uh, every big time and big shot professor is always afraid of the incoming new students. It's, it's, no, I mean, it's, 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 it, academia is incredibly harsh. Uh, uh -huh. These sort of uh, reputation economies where really the, the, your place in the world uh, uh, is, is really dependent on how hard you work and the quality of your work and the recognition of your peers, you are always being watched. Uh, it's, it's, it's high pressure, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but they seem to actually manage that. Like they, the, you know, our, our cadets and then uh, uh, all our officers and, and on the enterprise seem to be okay with it and actually to enjoy it. Uh, sure. And there's no real wolf at the door. I mean, if they do lose that position, they're always free to then, eh, continue yeah. to live and then try to get another job or, or the same job back. Oh, you know, they, they just quit Starfleet. I would, yeah, you know, I always wondered what they do once they quit Starfleet. Right. What happens to them? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, you know, that's the new uh, Captain Picard show. It's like uh, Jean-Luc Picard in retirement. Uh, <laughs> like, like, what do they do? You know, uh, uh, or do they ever retire or do they die on the job? I mean, maybe they become scientists and they go to the Daystrom Institute. Uh, sure. You know, so, so there's... Um, or they get a job at Cisco's. True. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that's it's like, okay, I'm done. I quit. I'm, I'm just going to run my father's restaurant. That's kind of cool. Sure. That's kind of, you know, after saving the galaxy, I'm like, my work is done here. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of adrenaline in being a, a Starfleet officer on the flagship. Mm -hmm. And then it's probably hard to uh, come down from that. Sure. Um, and it, it must be so exciting that Riker has turned down commands on, on more minor ships to stay number one on the enterprise because it's it's the flagship. So A lot of practical questions have come up on the show about how exactly the Federation economy operates on a day-to-day -day basis. And as the guy that wrote the book, I wanted to get your view on some of them. Uh, the Federation, of course, doesn't have money per se, mm -hmm. so don't take them out for pizza because you're going to pay. Yeah. But they do regularly deal with non-Federation yes. races who still have numismatic economies. Yes. So when they trade with them, what do they do? Do they have a Fort Knox filled with alien currency? They probably do. Do you remember in Deep Space Nine, there's the Bank of Bolias? And uh, uh, I think it's... Oh, yes, yes. But Bolias is part of the Federation. So the Bank of Bolias, it's it's Morn who raided or or, or did the, the... The heist. The heist, yes. 
so there is a reserve of currency in the Federation to be used by Federation officers who have to have an open account at Quarks. Um, sure. And that actually is not completely crazy. This is the kind of system that, say, uh, the USSR or China used to use. Uh, they had a unit of account for transactions inside their country, which was not subject to any kind of credit or, you know, which was not used as a commodity. So the renminbi or the ruble. And then they had a foreign account for, uh, they, they had an account in foreign currency for their dealings with other countries. Uh, okay. So so it's, it's almost like a, 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 I was going to say bimetallism, but but it's a bi-currency type of situation. There's one that's a unit of account inside the federation, and then there's there is a, there are reserves. And the thing is, that's one of the I think key problems in in the way the economics of the federation is set up is since the federation is beyond wealthy, it could potentially buy the entire universe, right? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean it's it's. Or you know, bribe its way to peace, for instance. Uh, it could flood the the Romulan Empire with cheap goods. Why don't yeah. you know? Like they don't do it, I guess, because of the Prime Directive, but they have the potential to do so. Uh, yeah. Do they have an economic Prime Directive to keep themselves from <laughs> just blowing up other people's economies? Or or maybe just you know buying them off. Uh, it's right. Th- there has to be because otherwise, since the Federation is beyond wealthy. And has all these replicators, you would think that they would have paid off everybody to, to keep the peace, uh, and it would seem to be the most efficient way to do it. Um, sure. the, the, what you have to keep in mind, I guess, in their dealings with other civilizations that, have, uh, uh, that use money, uh, is that the credit of the Federation is excellent. So they can always raise money for outside purposes. They, sure. It's it's more than excellent. It's probably the it's a, it's a little bit like the United States, right? It, it is the reference. It is the 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 reserve. It doesn't have a currency, but if it had, it would be the reserve currency of the galaxy. Uh, so, yes, that that does that does that make sense? Oh yeah. Okay. Next question. Next question. Uh, something that you talk about in your book is the du commerce theory, um, the idea that trade between nations makes them, quote unquote, nicer and they're less likely to go to war, if only out of economic self-interest. But it doesn't seem like this is much in practice on the show. Uh, the Federation is always getting in trouble, you know, yes. with the Klingons or the Romulans. I mean, the Romulan ale trade alone, who knows what 80 years of illegal Romulan mm-hmm. ale trade could have done for galactic relations. <laughs> yeah, you, you remember, like, when they shared Romulan ale, they suddenly, you're always like, I wish it wasn't forbidden because this is good, right? <laughs> yeah. Du commerce, du commerce. Uh, it, it is true that uh, this is one of the, maybe the inconsistencies in the show, uh, that you would think the Federation would have engaged in trade more systematically and aggressively. Um, but then again, maybe they don't care enough. Uh, and maybe, you know, you, you cannot really bribe the Klingons into anything. True. Uh, the, the Klingons are, 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 are thoroughly uninterested in these things. Uh, they, they're very romantic so I guess it's hard the Romulans on the other hand I can totally see how you could bribe a Romulan so <laughs> right I mean you know they're devious they like that like that's what they do so so yeah, yeah this is this is an inconsistency 
this is I wonder in in a collection of post scarcity societies if it's more the um, ideological sort of differences that would keep them apart. I mean, you mentioned Ian Banks before, mm-hmm. and he has, of course, his his culture yes. series, and the culture is very similar to the Federation. And it seems like the only times that they really get in trouble with other races is when they meet a race that's fanatically religious, you know, mm. or it's just completely against their sort of uh, laissez-faire lifestyle. So, so it's an opposition of values. And I guess, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that maybe that, that's the deeper issue here. Even though the theory of du commerce uh, states or, or proposes that all these differences will melt away once we start exchanging gifts or goods uh, and become acquainted with one another. Like that there's this radically uh, optimistic view of human nature or human relations. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of what Adam Smith uh, relies upon when, when he discusses the market. That mm. at the end, in the end, if, if, you, if you enter into relationships with others and you start exchanging goods and you will eventually discover that... Uh, you have more in common than what you think, uh, what you originally thought. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I see that with the Ferengis. The, the, the case of the Ferengis, I think, is the most interesting, where by the end of Deep Space Nine, they become much closer to the Federation in terms of, uh, you know, like they, they go from terminally sexist and exploitive <laughs> to, uh, you know, um, like, like the the authorized unions and and they have free health care for everybody and women can wear clothes and and uh, quark is really distraught so <laughs> right the federate the federation is uh just by nature a pretty honest and sort of fair dealing mm-hmm. association but do you think that they use their unlimited wealth to subtly uplift or influence non-federation societies like if if the freedom from scarcity is the open door for the individual and political freedom do they apply positive economic pressure to get other civilizations to kind of clean up their acts? You remember at some point, like they give away uh, industrial replicators, I think, to the Cardassians and the Bajorans. So sure. that that would be, uh, yeah, soft power or diplomacy, you know. Sure, sure. It's the kind of stuff that the Norwegians would do. Uh, okay. or, or, you know, <laughs> Canadians. Like, like they come in and, and they give you stuff. Uh it seems that there is an element of soft power. You will notice, by the way, that the the, the most valued post in, in the entire Federation government is ambassador. It's Ambassador Sarek, right? Or Ambassador sure. Spock. Like being a diplomat is sort of the crowning achievement of what you can be in the Federation, much even more than captain of the flagship of the flagship. So it seems that um, this, this sort of idea that diplomacy is is the highest form of political art, uh, it, it seems that it goes very well with this idea of soft power. Um, now, you know, at what point does it break the prime directive? Huh, who knows? That's uh, for the diplomats to decide, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, both in Trek and I guess in our world too, um, we're trying to conquer scarcity. And once we conquer scarcity, we have everything we need and even some things that we don't need. Mm-hmm. The majority of people 
I'm going to pick a random number. Let's say 99% of those people stand to gain a lot. And a small percentage, um, let's say 1%, mm-hmm. they'll also have a lot, but they'll lose the control they have over yeah. other people. And in a lot of circumstances, that 1% controls the science and industry that we need to reach post-scarcity. They're gatekeeping the future. So how do we get to a post-scarcity future without having to put the 1% up against the wall? Ha. Huh. Uh, that, that's the hundred billion dollar question. <laughs> I don't know. Credit. Yeah, right. <laughs> I really don't. Well, yeah, credit. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe we have the question. Um, maybe, maybe you could rephrase the question. Will, will the rich be able to give it up? Like, does the dissolution of individual states go in hand, hand in hand with economics? I would say that they would have to. For to give it up, they would have to gain something even bigger. Uh, but that's not necessarily easy to value in terms that are comprehensible today. Uh, yeah. I, I tend to believe that you know freedom and the good life for everybody is something that everybody should aspire to. Oh, of course. Uh, and 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 a more equal distribution of wealth. Uh, would certainly go a long way towards that. But it seems that there's there's a certain pessimism in those who say that you actually need the market and capitalist competition to, you know, lift all boats. Like, like you need the, the acquisitive rich people and entrepreneurs and quote-unquote risk-takers to actually move and drive the economy forward, like so that's that's the, the ideology. Um, yeah, that is not entirely correct, by the way. There are plenty of uh, historical examples where it's it's usually the state or you know universities that that drive, drive progress forward. Uh, I mean, the internet being one, you know. Uh, oh yeah, sure. So it's a tough question. I, I think. Uh, in, in a sense, it's a very contemporary question, and uh, it's one that uh, requires to take a political position. Uh, me, yeah, sure. I'm, you know, I grew up in France. Uh, uh, a lot of Americans, you know, would consider this a socialist hell. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the, the, the French socialist—that's just bad PR. <laughs> Come on. No, no, I, you know, I mean, the French socialist hell. Uh, has free health care, you know, free education. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, by, by all means, the standard of living, the standards of living are as high as in the U.S. for most people. So I would say, you know, uh, uh, the, the kind of uh, more systematically redistributive uh, political economy would probably benefit much a much larger number of people. Uh, yeah. uh, higher taxes and all that, but these are prescriptions for today, and everybody knows about them. And it seems pretty, fairly clear what has to be done. Uh, and there are practical issues and and a lot of uh, policy making involved. That, that's you know we can we cannot ask Star Trek to to give us a policy oh, roadmap. Sure. But yeah, um, what there's there's no real roadmap. I mean, no. and even Star Trek itself doesn't really do it because we've got Nuclear modern war. day. Yeah, I mean, it's like you've got the, the utopia, and then there's one or two stories like past tense, yes. where we're sort of in the middle. Yeah, yeah. and then there's uh, you know first contact where essentially oh, yes. essentially we learned that uh, there's a world war three and 
nuclear holocaust. So, <laughs> you know, maybe we, we can achieve something similar to Trek without the nuclear holocaust, maybe. That, that would, um, that, or without Vulcans. Yeah, I mean, yeah, let's face it, they're not coming. But uh, the, the, yeah, I, I, I would tend to think that we are at a stage, you know, of development in, in our species history where we have mastered a lot of what needs to be mastered to um, create a world where everybody can thrive and where the lottery of birth which is like the main injustice in the end in this world. It's the lottery of birth. Is that some people will be born in Canada or France, and some people will be born in Bangladesh. Bangladesh is okay, but like you know, in in sub-Saharan Africa, and you know, just by virtue of where they're born, their prospects in life will be radically different, and that is an injustice. Uh, and we have the means to. Um, mitigate that injustice, the material means. We don't have necessarily the political imagination to do so yet. Uh, this is where Star Trek comes in, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's hoping. Yeah. Um, just uh, before we go, our time's getting scarce. Uh, but before, <laughs> before, before we go, I'd like to ask, are there any other sci-fi worlds that you think are doing a good job of showing the interaction of technology and commerce? Like, for instance, um, do you watch The Expanse? I like The Expanse. I, I, I thought that, I mean, it's grim, right? It's, 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 well, yeah, yeah. It's grim. Let, let's face it. So so I watched it, and I thought, yeah, that, this is this is a very good uh, political discussion. Uh, I love Babylon 5. I thought Babylon, okay, sure. Babylon 5 was, was really uh, interesting in, in that it, it sort of took a very hard look at how democracy devolves uh it's it's babylon five you know so now 25 years later it looks a little dated i mean the special effects and you know it was done on the shoestring but the storytelling the storytelling is just amazing they're the ones who really brought uh the sort of multi-arc like five season long novelistic type of tv uh, I mean, Twin Peaks had started it, but Babylon 5 is really it. So I, I, big props to Babylon 5. And maybe someday you know, they'll, they'll do a reboot. Well, thanks for joining me today. Uh, the book is Treconomics. It really is interesting. It's easy to read as well. Uh, you make the subject very digestible. Where can people get the book? Uh, Amazon. That's, that's, you know, the go-to place. <laughs> the great replicator okay. in the sky. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's available everywhere, maybe at your local uh, bookstore. Uh, If you order it at your local bookstore, it's another order for the local bookstore, and they're always happy about it. And where can people find you online? Uh, At Treconomics on Twitter, mostly. Thanks for talking with me today. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks to Manu for coming on the show. The subject of economics in Trek is one that seems basic on the surface, i.e. no money. But once you start pulling back the layers, you see that it reaches into nearly every part of the franchise. And we could have gone on for hours about this kind of stuff, so we definitely have to have him back on the show. We barely got to talk about the Ferengi. I mean, no discussion of economics in Trek is comprehensive without a look at the Ferengi. And rest assured, Manu dedicates an entire chapter to everyone's favorite big-eared late-stage capitalists in his book, 
Manu makes a great point about Rom from DS9 in the book. Uh, Rom is one of my favorite characters, maybe my favorite character on DS9, as much due to Max Grodinchik's performance as to the writing of the character. Rom is a certified genius. I mean, he invented self-replicating minds. He essentially saves the entire Alpha Quadrant from the Dominion all by himself. And yet, because he didn't have the capital or the right opportunities in the Ferengi system, when we meet him, he's reduced to waiting tables at his brother's bar. So how's that for a critique of capitalism? Not to mention that the series of events that leads him to quit working at Quark's begins with the words, workers of the world unite. I'm not saying that Trek is anti-capitalist, but it's completely comfortable testing the relative clayness of the feet of our institutions. And Manu's book is a great guide for that journey. Like he said in the interview, you can get the book on Amazon or from a non-megalithic corporation, your choice. I've got a link to the book on Amazon in the show notes if you want to go that way. So check it out. It's a light but engaging read, and I heartily recommend it. You've got currency, and I've got dignity. But like the 109th rule of acquisition says, dignity and an empty sack is worth the sack. So when you're exchanging your hard-earned currency for goods on Amazon, why not click through the links in our show notes or click through our Amazon banner on enterprisingindividuals.com. When you click through and make a purchase on Amazon, they'll know that we sent you and a small percentage of your transaction comes back to us at no extra cost to you and helps us afford a bigger sack. All above board, of course, assuming the right people get their cut. Brat! FCA! And this counts for anything, not just Star Trek stuff. You want to buy a Babylon 5 DVD? You buy a Babylon 5 DVD. In fact, I've actually included a link for that very purpose in the notes. You can actually bookmark our Amazon banner, and when you click through to Amazon that way, whatever you buy, the same deal applies. And maybe you're saying, what a great idea. I can't wait to hit Amazon and buy, buy, buy to support the show. Anything else I can do? To which I would say, I don't know this man, but we should listen to him. You're, uh checks in the mail. But I would also say, if you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals and you want to support the show, why not head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there you can sign up to be a crew member for the show, and for a small monthly donation, you can get access to our exclusive subscriber content, like our live shows, including our live show with Melinda Snodgrass at Convergence 2018, my DS9 rewatch recaps, and our new episode commentaries, like our latest commentary for The Cage, our upcoming commentary for The Man Trap, we've got show merchandise and more. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod and become a member of the crew today. Anyone can join our crew. We're not picky. Everyone is welcome in the great material continuum. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. And we're not done just yet. I wanted to announce that our first t-shirt for the show is now on sale. We have a store on TeePublic, which you can find by searching for Just Enough Trope on TeePublic. That's our parent network. Or by clicking through the link in the show notes. The shirt is based on the design from our Convergence 2016 poster, and it features art by comic artist Andrew Blakeborough. I, I really can't describe the shirt adequately. It's very intricate and amazing. Uh, essentially, it asks, what if someone had made the ultimate set of Star Trek paper dolls. And of course, this shirt delivers on that idea. The shirt's available in a range of colors and sizes. Show your love for Star Trek, enterprising individuals, and paper dolls. Check it out. Link in the notes. And as always, anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. As I mentioned earlier, Ella Pearson will be our woman on location at Destination Trek this weekend, and she'll have picks and updates from the show. You can follow her at, at @gondorgold on Twitter or at generationsgeek on Instagram to get updates from the con. And this is a huge con, and it features the premiere of the DS9 documentary. It's very exciting. 
Remember, listeners, you can tweet to us or message the show and maybe have your comment read on the air. Just go to facebook.com forward slash EISTpod or find us at EISTpod on Twitter or through our social media links on enterprisingindividuals.com. You can also reach the show at EISTpod at gmail.com with feedback and suggestions or to just say hello. We're waiting to receive your transmission. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcasts listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. Remember that our review contest is still running for the month of October. If you leave a rating and review for our show on your listening platform of choice, you're automatically entered to win a 50th anniversary special edition set of Star Trek Trivial Pursuit cards complete with Galileo Shuttlecraft and card holder. Just leave us a review and a rating and shoot us a line at EISTpod at gmail.com to let us know that your hat's in the ring. The deadline for this is October 31st, so hop to it if you want to win. If you're not an Apple Podcast listener, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and a rating and a review on those platforms as well, you're still eligible to win and we would be eternally grateful. And as always, if you like the show, tell a friend. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. Before the 23rd century, Earth culture was haunted by fictional monsters and phantoms like Dracula and the Wolfman, and even historical legends like Jack the Ripper and Lady Bathory. But when we left for space, we left those superstitions behind. Or did we? What if one of those phantoms returned to wreak death and havoc on an unsuspecting Scotsman? Author Mark Giller returns to the show next week to be chilled by an episode of Star Trek The Original Series that adds Saucy Jackie to the canon and makes a convincing case as to why you should never leave Scotty alone with a woman. It's Wolf in the Fold, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying, live long and prosper. <laughs>